Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One day, around 3,400 years ago, a worker made their way through the streets of Arket Aten, Pharaoh's royal city where he lived and ruled and worshipped the sun. Arket Aten, the horizon of Aten, now known as Amana. The city bustled with life and industry as workers performed their crafts and officials performed their duties. Goods, tools, and provisions flowed into Arket Aten from other parts of Egypt and many items travelled from building to building in their long, complicated lives. Today, this particular worker carried a jar of honey. Honey was valuable, used in food, temple rituals, and even medicine. This golden, viscous liquid, commonly known as the Tears of Ra, offered sweet, safe delicacy, and the production of honey was an ancient craft indeed. So, as you can imagine, honey was popular at Arket Aten, and this little jar was going to play a surprisingly big role in history. The worker carried their jar of honey to some storage location and deposited it. The jar itself was simple earthenware, but it bore a label, a text of black ink on the surface. This label marked the name of the product, honey, and the date that it was stored. In this case, the date on the jar was Hat Sep 17, aka Regnal Year 17, the 17th year in the reign of Akhenaten, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. The label did not name the exact date, it did not have the month or the day, but it had the year, and that was good enough. Honey would last a long time if properly stored, so a regnal year was sufficient. And when the worker deposited their jar of honey in storage, they probably did not think anything of it. Later on, though, someone removed that jar for use. But by the time they needed this honey, the date had changed. A new year had begun, and the jar's label or text required updating. So the new owner of the honey took the jar out and quickly inscribed another date on the surface. This new record was brief but clear. Hat Sep 1. Regnal Year 1. What did this mean? Well, simply put, sometime after Year 17, the throne had changed hands. A reign had ended, and after 17 years in power, Akhenaten was dead. Iri, Nini, and Chen, greetings to you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 134, The Death of Argonaten. Today it is an ending of sorts. 
the final passing of Egypt's most baffling and controversial ruler. Nefer Keperu Ra, Wa En Ra, Akhenaten, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, died in his 17th year on the throne. Today, we explore the circumstances of his death, and how historians know about it. This episode was sponsored by Michael, who donated generously to the production. Also, thank you to Bruce and Aaron for supporting the show. Your kindness is greatly appreciated, folks. I am in your debt. May the Aten and any other deity who is listening shine upon you, on your crops, and on your Shabti workers. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me on with the show. The year was approximately 1346 BCE, regnal year 17 under the majesty of Neferkeperu-Ra Wa Enra. Akhenaten, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, lord of the two lands, son of Ra, etc., etc. Akhenaten was now in his mid-thirties, probably, and he had ruled Egypt for more than a decade and a half. Overall, it had been pretty successful, at least according to royal propaganda. Akhenaten referred to himself as A'a'em Ahau'ef, great in his lifetime. A pretty gutsy statement, all things considered and history would not judge Akhenaten as generously as he described himself. Still, the name maybe gives a hint that, officially, the reign was a splendid, triumphant achievement. If there were any problems, they surely were not Akhenaten's fault. Year 17 would be the final year of Akhenaten's rule. By this point, the king had instituted more changes than we can describe. He had promoted an old god, Aten, to new status, raising the sun disk up as high as the sun itself sat in the sky. Akhenaten had also established an entirely new city, the royal residence of Aket Aten. He, or his officials, had crushed enemies in the south, and compelled foreign princes to give their tribute to Pharaoh. From horizon to horizon and far beyond, the power and name of Akhenaten, Nefer Keperu Ra, shone over all lands. Of course, we know that things were not so simple. The king's regime was in difficulty following a string of deaths in the royal family. We also know that Akhenaten may have been lashing out violently against the cult and symbols of Amun, king of the gods. Akhenaten's agents were targeting the hieroglyphs and images of Amun, and chiseling them away. They were also damaging the names of Amun's family, including his wife, Mut, and his son, Konsu. This attack affected other gods here and there, but the focus was definitely on Amun, and on his trinity. Akhenaten's anger towards Amun is hard to rationalise. Perhaps he felt that the god was responsible for those recent deaths in his family, a kind of punishment or divine retribution for Akhenaten's actions. In that perspective, perhaps Akhenaten was retaliating, eye for an eye, you destroy my family, I destroy yours. Alternatively, perhaps Akhenaten felt that his program, quote-unquote, was incomplete, 
that the Aten could never truly be supreme if Amun was still around. After all, Amun frequently bore the title King of the Gods, and Akhenaten had made it quite clear that for him, the only King of the Gods was Aten. Shining above, Aten was a god without equal, his like did not exist. Accordingly, perhaps Akhenaten felt that he needed to remove Amun, to remove the threat that the god posed to Aten. In this perspective, perhaps the king's attack was a last-moment attempt to guarantee the cult and legacy of Aten, and, by extension, guarantee the legacy of Akhenaten. So, Akhenaten's agents were erasing the names of Amun, king of the gods. In his palace, the king's family was dwindling, as several close members died in quick succession. Far away, the king's empire was also in some difficulty, as foreign kingdoms pressed on the borders, and some vassals went rogue, carving out territory for themselves. It seems like the king's regime was in a difficult situation. And with all these problems going on, it is quite surprising that very little information survives about Akhenaten's final year. The last months of Akhenaten's life and rule are incredibly quiet in terms of historical records. There are no proclamations or documents to indicate significant royal projects, and over the last couple of years, Akhenaten seems to go quiet. Obviously, there are many possible reasons for this. Perhaps the king was ill and unable to participate meaningfully in his government. Or perhaps Akhenaten took a step back in order to spend more time worshipping the Aten, or spending time with his family. We do not know, and the historical records do not give us any clues. All we can say is that towards the end, the information dries up and the king's reign goes quiet. It seems that Akhenaten's reign ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. Akhenaten died in his 17th regnal year. We do not know the cause of death. The ancient Egyptians tended to treat this subject quite tentatively. When a king died, official texts would either ignore it and not refer to the event, or they would describe it with a euphemism. The most common phrase was, Horus has flown or flew to the sky. This may have been self-explanatory to the ancients. The king was Horus incarnate, so when he died, the idea of a falcon flying west towards the horizon may have seemed like an appropriate metaphor. So, every now and again, we might learn that a king passed, because some text refers to Horus flying to the sky. We do not have that with Akhenaten. There is no official record of his death. So, we do not know exactly what caused it. It seems safe to assume that the death was natural, either an illness or a condition. Akhenaten had ruled for 17 years, a solid length of time by ancient standards. So, for all we know, his death is entirely natural. Of course, it is tempting to wonder if the king died in more suspicious circumstances. With everything that had happened, all the changes and reforms he instituted, 
Akhenaten may have had enemies. We know that some people opposed his ideas. He blamed opposition, or, quote, terrible things that he heard, as a major reason why he abandoned the southern city of Waset, or Luxor. So the king was not universally beloved, and it is possible that one of these opponents decided that enough was enough, that the king should be quietly removed so that things could go back to normal. Unfortunately, there is zero evidence to indicate that. It is purely speculation. Depending on the book you read, Akhenaten can appear to be a radical revolutionary who needed to be taken down, or a more detached philosopher who simply dwindled away at the end. Every author has their own spin on the situation, and depending how they describe it, you may be tempted to think that Akhenaten experienced a violent end to his reign. To be clear, though, there is no text, artistic piece, or artifact that would indicate such a dramatic death. Suggestions that Akhenaten died of murder, or was deposed, are entirely speculative. No matter how fancy the theory, we simply do not know. So, the cause of Akhenaten's death is uncertain. I am willing to put my money on natural causes. Current evidence suggests that Akhenaten died of illness or weakness. We can't say more than that. Even if the manner of his death is uncertain, we do have a pretty good idea of when this event occurred. Akhenaten died in his 17th regnal year, and the king probably passed away sometime around late September or October. We know this thanks to ancient pottery. Excavations at the city of Amarna during the 1930s uncovered huge amounts of ceramics. Broken pieces from pots, jugs, bowls, and jars recorded a huge assortment of crockery and various goods. Many of the pieces from these jars or jugs bore inscriptions, labels relating to the date in which they were used. Some of these dates are extremely informative for the death of Akhenaten. At some point, one of the excavators, probably an Egyptian, unearthed a piece of pottery bearing a simple written text. The jar carried the label, Honey, Regnal Year 17, and just below that, another text said, Regnal Year 1. This little record indicates that the calendar changed sometime around year 17 of Akhenaten. Simply put, the official calendar was based on a king's regnal years, the number of years that he had been on the throne. So this label indicates that the honey was stored in year 17, but it was also used in year 1, which means that this little jar of honey is spanning two different reigns. We can interpret this a couple of different ways. First, and perhaps most obvious, the jar might have been used around the time that one king passed away and a new ruler came to power. Alternatively, it might record two kings ruling at the same time. The label for year 17 is not crossed out or erased, so it's possible that the year 17 and the year 1 were happening at the same time. If that sounds strange, let me explain. In a previous episode, we saw how Akhenaten might have promoted his wife Nefertiti to be his co-ruler. 
There is some evidence to suggest that Nefertiti, or Nefer Neferu Aten, became a kind of co-regent for the king towards the end of his reign. It is possible that this little jar of honey records that brief period when both of them ruled together. Akhenaten would be in his 17th regnal year, but technically Nefertiti would be in her first. So this little honey jar might be our strongest evidence for the two sharing power. Unfortunately, the pottery is broken just where we might expect a name or cartouche for the ruler. With that in mind, it's impossible to say. All we know is that there was a year 17 and a year 1 around the same period. For the sake of our story, let's assume that this jar of honey refers to two different kings ruling at two different times. In that scenario, we seem to have a transition around year 17 of Akhenaten. This is fairly compelling evidence, but it's also quite vague. The 17th regnal year was a good 12 months long, so how can we narrow it down a little bit more? To pinpoint Akhenaten's death, we need to know two things. Firstly, we need to know when he came to power, because this was the start of his regnal year. If the king died in year 17, then we need to know when year 17 started and when it was going to end. Fortunately, Egyptologists have done this. Historians like Mark Gabold and William Murnane analysed the texts and monuments of Akhenaten and determined he most likely came to power in the first month of Peret, the growing season. Roughly speaking, this would be late November or December. Fairly simple, a good starting point. With the date of his coronation reasonably secure, we can then work backwards to figure out when he probably died. Logically, Akhenaten must have passed away before the first month of Peret, late November or December. If he had died any later, then the calendar would have ticked over to regnal year 18, and no artifact or object records that number for Akhenaten. So, he must have died before December in regnal year 17. That's a good starting point, but still a little bit vague. How do we get down to a month, or at the very least, a season? Again, ancient ceramics give us the clues. Among the thousands of pottery pieces recovered from Amana, archaeologists have documented many bearing a huge variety of dates. The most valuable records come from wine jars. Every year, the wine harvest was picked, processed, and bottled. And when each vintage went into the jugs, the vintners labelled their jars with the appropriate year, just like today. As a result, we have wine labels recording the vintage for many of Akhenaten's years. As it happens, several of those jugs mention year 17, and none of them mention year 18. What this means is that Akhenaten must have died after the wine harvest in year 17. That gives us another clue, and if we can figure out when the wine harvest occurred, we can pinpoint the rough period when the king died. Again, archaeologists and historians have done this. Roughly speaking, the wine harvest occurred around August or September. This was the period that the Nile flood was starting, the annual inundation when the waters rose to cover the fields and swamp the vineyards. 
Logically, the winemakers would have gathered in the harvest before the waters rose too high. And on that basis, we could assume that the wine harvest in year 17 of Akhenaten began sometime around August. Add a few weeks for processing, fermentation, and bottling, and you would have wine deliveries starting to arrive at the capital sometime around September. Every jar that arrived at the capital was labelled with the appropriate regnal date, which means that pottery gives us the clues that official texts and monuments do not. On the basis of these little jars, historians can pinpoint Akhenaten's death to an 8-10 to 10 week period around late September or October. Coincidentally, late September and early October is when I am releasing this episode. So, as we tell the tale of Akhenaten's death, it is also the rough anniversary of that event. That does not happen very often on this show, so I appreciate the coincidence. From tiny traces in the archaeological and historical record, Egyptologists can pinpoint the moment of Akhenaten's death to an unusually specific degree. The king must have died around September or October in his 17th regnal year. This means that Akhenaten's final weeks on earth were spent in the time of cooling. Winter was on the horizon, the days were growing shorter, and the nights were growing colder. This would be an inauspicious time for a king who loved the sun so much, who viewed the long days as a mark of Aten's favour and love. Of course, the approach of winter is also a time when illnesses become more common and more threatening. Perhaps it is unsurprising, then, that as the months grew colder, Akhenaten grew weaker, and on the eve of his anniversary, the start of his 18th year, the king finally breathed his last, and his soul left his body. With the pharaoh gone, the next task was to prepare his body and his burial. The priests would mummify the king and lay him in a sarcophagus. He would rest, surrounded by treasures, in a secret chamber of his tomb. Akhenaten's burial at Amana, and what we know about it, is the next chapter of our story. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let a tomb be made for me in the eastern mountain of Akhet Aten. Let my burial be made within it, in the millions of anniversaries that the Aten, my father, decreed for me. From the Boundary Stelae, recording Akhenaten's proclamations back in year 5 of his reign.
The year was 1346 BCE, around October. Akhenaten, king of Egypt, was dead. His family and followers mourned, and the priests began to prepare his body. Mummification would follow, and the royal corpse would go into its coffin, ready for the funeral. At this point, my story becomes slightly difficult, because we do not know if Akhenaten's mummy survives or is lost. There is one candidate for this king's body, the skeletal remains discovered at Luxor in the early 1900s. That person, the KV-55 mummy, might be Akhenaten, but it might not. And the question is extremely complicated. Originally, I had planned to cover KV-55 and its relationship to Akhenaten in this episode, but the discussion grew quite large, and realistically, it was a distraction. To keep this episode manageable, I am going to discuss KV-55 and its relationship to Akhenaten in episode 134b. For now, I want to keep my focus on the royal tomb at Amarna, the place where Akhenaten originally went after he died. In chapter 1, we learned that Akhenaten's death probably occurred in late September or October in his 17th regnal year. The event of his death is not officially recorded. There is no text saying when Akhenaten, quote, flew to heaven, or when the transition to the new ruler occurred. With this in mind, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the circumstances were. But there is one artistic image that might reference his passing. A stone stealer, now in the University College London, preserves an image that might indicate the death of Akhenaten. The stealer is fragmented, just a few pieces survive, but reconstructions of the image suggest that it used to depict Akhenaten seated on his throne. The king sits in the middle of the scene, with the Aten high above, shining down upon him. Behind, the figure of Nefertiti stands loyally, reaching out to place a hand on the king's shoulder. These parts are relatively conventional, nothing to write home about. The right-hand side of the stealer, though, is intriguing. It seems to show a pair of princesses standing in front of Akhenaten. They are bald with the characteristic shaved heads of Akhenaten's daughters. And again, they may not seem particularly unusual but the princesses stand in a strange posture. In front of their father, the two girls raise their hands above their heads, in a gesture that is characteristic of mourning. The girls place their hands to their foreheads, and we see this pose in other tombs at Amana and in funeral processions depicted in ancient monuments. The hand to the head seems to be a pose of grief, which begs the question, does this stealer reference the death of Akhenaten? I have a suspicion that this image is meant to convey the king's passing, or at least the posthumous grieving when his widow and daughters mourned the passing of their lord. If that is the case, it would be an unusual image, yet another departure from convention. So I make this suggestion with all kinds of caveats. Then again, Akhenaten's reign is not exactly conventional, so perhaps a memorial image is just one more example of innovations and experimentation in royal art. Again, 
this is all speculative. Take it with a coffin full of salt. But it is a fascinating picture. I have posted a reconstruction on the podcast website. When the king died, the next problem was his burial. Akhenaten's body gave up the ghost, and the priests began to mummify his corpse. Soon, the body would travel to his tomb, where Akhenaten would rest for eternity. Akhenaten established his tomb in a river valley east of Akhet Aten. A dry wadi snakes its way through the hills for a couple of kilometres before you reach an unobtrusive cliff. Here, a shallow pit forms an entrance with a dark rectangular doorway leading into the monument. It is a quiet, out-of-the-way spot, secluded, silent, and positively drenched in daytime sunlight. Perfect for the favoured son of Aten. Once again, Akhenaten broke with tradition when he set up his royal burial site. Conventionally, kings built their tombs in the west, the place of sunset. Akhenaten, though, was far more interested in sunrise, the time when the Aten's light emerged to banish darkness and restore the world to life. For this king, a tomb in the east was more appropriate. So, when the royal funeral began, the procession made its way out of the temples and headed for the eastern hills. Over a couple of hours, they led a slow walk, wailing and chanting among the rocky cliffs. Eventually, the procession reached the pit that led to the door. Carrying the king's coffin down carefully, they passed the threshold and entered the darkness of the tomb. The royal tomb at Amarna is different from other 18th dynasty burials. Previously, royal architects had designed the tombs to be a kind of corkscrew. The passages would twist and turn as they descended into the rock. This might have simulated the journey to the afterlife, to the winding waterways and caverns that led to the kingdom of Osiris. Akhenaten, though, abandoned that crooked layout and did something simpler. His architects, or the king himself, planned a tomb that followed a single straight axis. A long corridor in several stages cut directly into the hillside. It went down, alternating between smooth ramps and steep staircases. At the bottom, a deep pit descended into the earth, probably a well to catch flood water, or possibly a symbolic feature leading to the underworld. Either way, the royal tomb had a fairly simple layout, straight corridors going down, ending in a shaft, and just beyond that, the burial chamber itself. Akhenaten's burial chamber was a simple square hall. It has two pillars or columns on one side, and the rest is open plan. There is a small secondary chamber in one corner, which looks like an extension that was planned but never finished. Beyond that, the layout is simple, not much to say about it. The walls of Akhenaten's burial chamber bear an unusual style of decoration. I'm not talking about the artistic style, that was already strange. No, what is weird about this tomb is that the king abandoned conventional imagery and symbolism. You see, royal tombs used to feature images and texts related to the afterlife, hieroglyphs, figures, and symbols of the underworld, or spells for traversing eternity. 
These had dominated royal tomb decoration since the 18th dynasty began. Akhenaten, though, did something different. In Akhenaten's tomb, the burial chamber does not show images of the afterlife. Instead, it shows images of life on earth. Across the walls, we see images of the Aten shining over the royal city. We see the temples bustling with life and filled with sunlight. We see chariot processions as the king rides through the suburbs with his soldiers parading before him. The pharaoh and his wife Nefertiti ride their chariots with daughters following behind. Overall, the walls seem to emphasize life in the light of Aten continuing forever. Today, the burial chamber of Akhenaten's tomb is in a poor state. Centuries of water damage caused parts of the chamber to flake away, and later on, vandals chiseled parts of the wall decoration to damage them or to sell them. As a result, the tomb of Akhenaten now seems like a sad, gloomy place. Restoration work and electric lights can only do so much. It seems like a depressing spot. However, don't let the modern state fool you. Once upon a time, the burial chamber of Akhenaten's tomb would have been a beautiful, brightly painted space. The artistic images adorning the walls were not meant to be drab or grey. Originally, they were colourful, lively scenes. Blues, yellows, reds, browns, blacks, greens, all the colours that you would find in Egypt would have appeared here. The temples on the walls would have featured colourful flags. The chariots would have shone with yellow or golden paint. The king and the queen and their followers would have seemed alive, their eyes glimmering as they rode beneath the radiance of Aten. Originally, the walls of this tomb were full of colour, and looking at the subject matter, you can see that Akhenaten wanted to surround himself with life. A sense of joie de vivre pervades the images, in this tomb and everywhere in Akhet Aten. Fundamentally, Akhenaten celebrated light and life, and he made sure that his tomb conveyed that as well. This was not supposed to be a gloomy place. It was meant to be bright, lively, vivacious. Akhenaten's imagery always emphasized a sense of joy in the pleasures of life. His tomb does the same. So these days, we see the burial chamber in its worst possible condition. Damaged walls, devoid of paint, make it seem like a grey, lifeless place. This is the exact opposite of what Akhenaten intended. When the king's body went to its rest, he would have been surrounded by images of eternal life. And when the Aten rose every day on the horizon, that light would permeate the world and find its way to the tomb. Aten's rays would bathe the burial chamber, filling it with the light and magic of Aten's power. And lying in his sarcophagus, Akhenaten would live forever in his father's warm embrace. Akhenaten would rest forever in the light of the sun god. Speaking of sunlight, I should briefly mention an idea that pops up occasionally. You see, the design of Akhenaten's tomb, with its long straight corridor leading to the burial chamber, has prompted some speculation about sunlight and geometry. Basically, the idea goes that the long, straight corridor 
might allow sunlight to enter the tomb and penetrate all the way to the burial chamber. Supposedly, this could happen a couple of times a year, perhaps on significant dates. There is no record or text that would suggest Akhenaten planned this idea. He did not reference light penetrating his tomb physically. Likewise, the physical setup of the burial chamber suggests that the idea is inaccurate. For the sunlight to touch Akhenaten's sarcophagus, it would need to lie in the center of the chamber, directly in front of the doorway. But the sarcophagus wasn't located there. It was placed to one side, on a shallow podium that is still in the hall. So the king's body was lying in the wrong place, if sunlight was supposed to touch it. Additionally, sunlight coming down the corridor would require something particular or rather, the absence of something. For the light to reach the burial chamber, the long corridor would need to be open, no doorways and no sealed walls. Unfortunately, that was not the ancient practice. To preserve the king's body, and thus preserve his immortal soul, the doors and passageways of the tomb were bricked up and sealed in antiquity. Security was the most important feature. That is why New Kingdom tombs were hidden, why the kings no longer demanded pyramids. So, for Akhenaten to leave his tomb wide open with his sarcophagus at the mercy of robbers, that is extremely unlikely. The idea that the tomb has a special setup to allow sunlight into the burial chamber is not credible. It is possible that the straight corridor was meant to allow the idea of sunlight, or a special divine sunlight to enter the tomb. After all, Aten was the lord of creation. A few doorways were not going to stop his magic power. Maybe the design would allow Aten's light to enter the tomb metaphysically, even if the earthly light stayed outside. So we can only speculate. Perhaps the design of the tomb evokes physical sunlight or philosophical sunlight. Or perhaps there is another unknown reason for its design. Either way... Akhenaten's tomb does mark a new phase in the architecture of royal burials. So, Akhenaten died. He was mourned by his family, his body was mummified, and the funeral procession made its way to the royal tomb. There, they laid the king's mummy into his stone sarcophagus. Amazingly, Akhenaten's sarcophagus actually survives to this day. It's heavily damaged, but restored, and looking at it closely, we can get a sense of his final resting place. Akhenaten's burial container was a rectangular box. It was carved from pink granite, a pale rose colour with streaks of black and grey running through the stone. It was quite beautiful and probably quite expensive. The stonemasons and sculptors must have spent years carefully designing and carving this piece. The shape of the sarcophagus is relatively simple. Smooth sides with decorations and a flat lid. No particular embellishments, just hieroglyphs and images carved on the stone. So, the actual shape of Akhenaten's container is nothing remarkable. It's the decoration that really stands out. Let's start with the lid. The lid of Akhenaten's sarcophagus was simple but beautiful. 
The surface was dominated by hieroglyphs and an enormous emblem of the Aten. The sun's disk appears at the head of the sarcophagus, directly above the place where Akhenaten's head would lie. The disk bears a uraeus or royal cobra, and beneath the Aten, long rays of light fan out to cover the lid. Each ray ends in the symbol of a hand, and each hand carries an ankh, the hieroglyph for life. In this sense, the surface of Akhenaten's sarcophagus was covered in the emblems of light, the Aten, and life emerging from the sun. The visual magic was potent, the king was encased in divine symbols. The sides of the sarcophagus, its walls, also feature large emblems of the Aten. At the centre of the long wall, in the top portion, a large disc emerged from the face. The image of Aten was carved in three dimensions, and it bulged outward in a shallow hemisphere. If you have ever run your hands over a book cover where the lettering kind of sticks out, you know the effect. The flat surface of the sarcophagus was broken by an embossed, bulging disc, the Aten emerging from the face of the sarcophagus. The fact that this emblem is carved in three dimensions might hint at something interesting. It suggests that the Egyptians recognised that the sun was a sphere, a ball, which is a remarkable observation considering the time. Of course, they could easily see that the sun was a disc, but they apparently understood that Aten was not a flat, two-dimensional object. They understood that it existed in three dimensions. Perhaps I'm reading a bit too much into that, perhaps they just like the artistic effect. Still, it is an intriguing feature. As with the lid, the Aten's rays stretch out to cover much of the side of the sarcophagus. Again, each ray of light ends with a hand, and every hand clutches the ankh. So, on the lid and the walls, Akhenaten's sarcophagus was covered with images of light and life. At each corner of the box, the sarcophagus bore another set of symbols. The top of each corner had another sun disk, Aten, shining down. These were smaller, though, and the rays of light extended just a little bit. Beneath these miniature Artens, the corners of the box carried images of four women. These ladies stood tall with their arms stretched wide, one arm on one side of the corner, the other arm wrapping around to the other. They wore long robes, and on their heads the ladies sported flat crowns with tall feathers or plumes. We have seen this kind of crown before, on Queen T, but in this case the cartouches identify the woman as Nefer Neferu Aten Neferet Iti, the great king's wife, Nefertiti. Nefertiti appears on Akhenaten's sarcophagus as a kind of protective goddess. She wears divine crowns, and on her forehead she sports a pair of uraei, two cobras protecting her body. The Aten above her holds life to Nefertiti's lips, so that her image can live forever and protect Akhenaten's body. Beside the figures, hieroglyphic texts proclaim the following, quote, The great wife of the king, his beloved, the lady, or female lord, of the two lands, Nefer Neferu Aten Neferet Iti, one who lives in Jet and Hech, aka forever and eternity. End quote. 
With Nefertiti and the Aten filling much of the space, Akhenaten's sarcophagus was wrapped with divine symbols. To guarantee this, and the immortality of his name, the rest of the available surface featured columns of hieroglyphs. These texts were simple. They recorded the titles and cartouches of Akhenaten as pharaoh. In other words, the sarcophagus was plastered with the king's names. This was an effective way to ensure his immortality. Although his body was dead, as long as Akhenaten's name endured, he could expect a long afterlife. In terms of religious texts, Akhenaten's sarcophagus is unusual. It lacks certain features that we would expect on a royal vessel. What we don't see on the sarcophagus are the spells or texts related to the Egyptian afterlife. The surviving fragments of this box make no mention of Osiris, or the spells necessary to reach the world of the dead. In fact, Akhenaten's sarcophagus and tomb ignore the Book of the Dead and the Amduat, the religious texts that helped guide 18th dynasty kings. It seems that the king was not interested in using older texts. Instead, Akhenaten's sarcophagus and tomb focused on the light of the Aten and the life that that light bestowed. There was no place for underworld caverns or judgments of the dead. The king's burial chamber would be a home for sunlight and the vitality of life on earth. Akhenaten's body lay in a beautiful stone box, one covered with hieroglyphs and images. Symbols proclaimed the king's greatness and his eternal life in the Aten's light. Images repeated this motif visually, surrounding the royal mummy with symbols of light and life. At each corner, the king's wife, Nefertiti, appeared as a protective eternal goddess. It was a nice way to go if you're looking to design a casket. Akhenaten's sarcophagus survives to this day. Sort of. Long ago, vandals smashed it to pieces, and archaeologists have reconstructed the container from a few scattered fragments. Not all of it survives, but there was enough to reconstruct the box overall and get a sense of its decoration. Today, the pink granite chest sits in a courtyard at the old Egyptian Museum in Cairo. It is out of the way, and you might not notice it if you were just walking past. Which is strange. The old museum has a room dedicated to the Amarna period and Akhenaten, yet his beautiful sarcophagus sits outside, where hundreds of tourists pass by, none the wiser. Hopefully, the box will move to the new Grand Egyptian Museum, along with all the other Amarna goods that are currently undergoing restoration. If that happens, perhaps Akhenaten will get a more beautiful monument for his last surviving relics. So, the king went to his rest in a beautiful sarcophagus in a burial chamber located in a strange but fascinating tomb. Surrounded by his treasures, the king would rest for eternity, while on the walls, the light of Aten filled the chambers and allowed the king to awake forever. It's now time for another quick break. After the music, we will dive into the burial goods which accompanied Akhenaten on his journey. Some of these survive and are in museums today. Looking at these trinkets, we can get a sense of Akhenaten's ideas and the objects he wanted to take to eternity. That is after the music.
See you in a moment. In October 1346 BCE, Akhenaten was dead. The king's body went into its casket, and the mourners now started to place the burial goods that would accompany him in eternity. We do not know much about Akhenaten's treasures, but a couple of pieces survive to give us a hint. Primarily, we do have evidence for the king's shabtis. The Egyptian shabti, sometimes called ushabti, is a statue, shaped like a human mummy. They tend to be small, about 10 centimetres tall, or 4.5 inches, and they carry tools in their hands. These figures were meant to serve the deceased, to work on their behalf, and assist them in the afterlife. You don't want to spend eternity working the fields, and Egyptian rulers had given up sacrificing actual servants way back in the first dynasty. By the time of Akhenaten, Shabti figurines were a standard feature of any wealthy tomb. Pharaoh did not skimp on this asset. While he changed many things, Akhenaten still took Shabtis that could serve him in eternity. Many of these Shabtis are in museums today, and scholars researching the period can use these figurines to uncover aspects of Akhenaten's religion and the nature of the afterlife during his reign. Akhenaten's shabtis are different from the traditional Egyptian ones. Visually, they are pretty similar, human figures with crossed arms holding tools. But Akhenaten's shabtis are different in one significant feature. Namely, these statues tend to lack something that a conventional shabti would bear. In normal circumstances, Egyptian shabti carried a text, Hieroglyphs carved on the body of the statue would convey a particular spell related to it. These glyphs, these spells, were taken from the Book of the Dead, that famous text relating to the afterlife and the kingdom of Osiris. Well, conventional Shabti would bear a short passage or chapter from the Book of the Dead, specifically chapter 6. This was a spell that told the Shabti to awake, the statue should come to life so that they could serve their master and work on their behalf. Conventionally, a Shabti would bear the following text. Quote, o Shabti, given to me, if I be summoned, or if I be detailed, to do any work that must be done in the realm of the dead, if obstacles are implanted for you as a man at his duties, you shall detail yourself for me, on every occasion of making fertile the fields, of flooding the banks, or of conveying sand from east to west. You shall say, here I am, end quote. That might sound convoluted, but the gist is simple. If the deceased person, Akhenaten or whoever, needed to do work, then they could read the spell on the Shabti. The statue would wake up and get to work, 
doing the task on behalf of the master. In this sense, the Shabti answered for their owner, going to work in place of the deceased. It was a useful tool, helping the dead to avoid irritating busy work in the afterlife, and guaranteeing them an eternal source of income. The Shabti were immortal servants, and having them was a valuable asset. So many Shabtis had a passage from the Book of the Dead, specifically designed to wake them up in the next world. That was the conventional text for a Shabti statue, but Akhenaten's Shabti do not have this spell. Instead, his statues bear a simple caption, stating the pharaoh's names and titles. All the spells, all the religious tools are absent. And this applies to Akhenaten's Shabti specifically, but also the Shabti of other people buried during this period. What gives? There are a couple of explanations why Amana Shabti lack this waking up spell. A simple explanation might say that Akhenaten wanted to banish the older texts, to remove them from the record and purify his religion. Since the king's writing and imagery focused on Aten above all others, you might assume that he tried to erase the older spells and banish the conventional texts. That is a popular interpretation, and it might be correct. On the other hand, there might be a more positive interpretation. Looking at Akhenaten's texts and artistic scenes, there is a common theme running through them. In the centre of Akhenaten's religious proclamations, one of the core ideas is that Aten, the sun, creates all life in the universe. The light of the sun revives all souls and brings forth all animals and people. We heard this idea back in episode 116, when we explored the great hymn to Aten. In that text, the king said, quote, The land grows bright when you are risen from the horizon. Shining in the Aten in the daytime, you push back the darkness and give forth your rays. The two lands are in a festival of light, awake and standing on legs, for you have lifted them up. Their limbs are cleansed and wearing clothes. Their arms are in adoration at your appearing. The whole land, they do their work. End quote. In Akhenaten's view, the light of Aten awakened all beings from sleep and from death. The sun's rays brought life back into the world every dawn, and the power of the sun restored all things to their waking, working state. This idea is fundamental to the philosophy and imagery of Akhenaten's religion. We see it in texts, and we see it in art. Whenever Aten appears, the sun's rays stretch out from the disk, and those rays end in the shape of hands, hands that clutch the hieroglyph Ankh, the symbol of life. In other words, Akhenaten's texts and artistic scenes emphasize a core idea. The sun is the source of light, the light is the source of life. Aten awakens all things. In that sense, perhaps there is a more positive interpretation of Akhenaten's Shabtis. The king's statuettes lack the spells from the Book of the Dead, spells designed to awaken them to life and work. That might seem strange. How do the Shabti wake up if they do not have the spell? Well, I wonder if these Shabti lack the awakening spells because 
Akhenaten thought they didn't need them. In the king's view of the world, the light of Aten woke the earth and its inhabitants every morning. The sunlight brought people out of darkness and restored them to light, to life and to working. From that perspective, the Shabti would not need a spell to wake them up. As soon as the light of Aten crested the sunrise, they would come to life automatically. That was the sun god's power, the power of life itself. So the king's Shabti might lack the older spells, but that does not need to be a negative. Perhaps the older texts were not banished, they were simply obsolete. Perhaps the king felt that Shabti were like any person or animal living on earth. Every morning, the Aten's light would awaken them naturally. No spell required. Perhaps Akhenaten's Shabti are simply, well, simplified. When it was time to awake, the Aten's light would take care of everything. That is my interpretation of the Shabti situation, and to be honest, I have not dived too deeply into this topic. I will revisit it in an upcoming episode, when we discuss non-royal religion at Amana, what the other people were doing while Akhenaten was pursuing his ideas. So we will return to the Shabtis and the larger question of religion in an upcoming episode. For now, let us move on and finish up the burial of Akhenaten. The king lay in his sarcophagus, surrounded by treasures. His Shabti figurines survive and give us a glimpse at the items that probably accompanied him. We can also guess at some parts of Akhenaten's burial, based on contemporary evidence from other tombs. From the burials of Queen T and King Tutankhamun, we get a sense that Akhenaten's sarcophagus probably lay within a shrine. A wooden box and canopy, probably covered with gold, might have encased Akhenaten's burial. This hypothetical shrine does not survive today, but we can guess that it probably was there. Queen T, Akhenaten's mother, had one, and his successor, King Tutankhamun, had four. So it's a good bet that the pharaoh had at least one of these surrounding his sarcophagus. Based on evidence from the tomb of Tutankhamun and the artistic scenes in Akhenaten's tomb, we could also guess that the king probably went to the afterlife with a chariot. Many images in Amana tombs show Akhenaten riding his chariot on parades and processions, and King Tutankhamun had multiple chariots in his burial chambers. So, again, it is a good bet that Akhenaten had one. Along with those big pieces, there would also be various smaller items. Jars of wine and bowls of food for the king to use in his eternal life. There might be cosmetics and jewellery to adorn his body. Sets of clothes for him to wear. There was probably a throne or some chairs for Akhenaten to use, and perhaps other items like walking sticks or weapons of hunting and war. Akhenaten probably went to his afterlife with all the treasures you might expect. Even if the king's religious beliefs were slightly unusual, he still took many items with him to eternity. So, once upon a time, Akhenaten's burial probably would have been lavish. Lying in his beautiful pink sarcophagus, surrounded by golden treasures, and with walls depicting colourful, lively scenes, 
the king's final resting place would have been a glittering, colourful affair. It is one that exists now only in our imagination, but I imagine it was lovely. The king was dead, his programme of reform was ended, and as his soul awoke in the light of Aten, the son of Ra became a ruler in the next world. He was not Osiris, Akhenaten did not seem interested in that idea. Instead, the king would live on, not as a mummy or an immortal corpse, but as himself. If the Aten awoke him to light and life, the king would carry on much as he had done. Only now he could shelter in the last embrace of his eternal father. Awaking in the field of reeds, the shadows of this world would disappear, and he travelled to a land of light. Thinking on this image, I remember a passage from J.R.R. Tolkien, who said, quote, The journey does not end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back, and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. White shores, and beyond, a far green country, under a swift sunrise. End quote. At the risk of being non-historical, I admit that I am quite fond of Akhenaten, and I think he would appreciate Tolkien's vision of death and what lies beyond. I am sad to leave this king behind, even if I look forward to the next chapter. So let us remember Akhenaten at the moment of sunrise. For Nefer Keperu Ra, the sole one of Ra, may the Aten care for you on every moment of its journey. Farewell. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neferkeperu Ra, Wa En Ra, the son of Ra, Akhenaten, great in his lifetime, was dead. The sun set on his reign and rose with a new king wearing the crowns of Egypt. Akhenaten's heir, his successor, was in a unique position. The man who changed so much about royal power and its expression was gone. Now there were many decisions to make. Before we consider the aftermath of Akhenaten's death, we must consider his legacy. Originally, I wanted to discuss that legacy now, in the last part of this episode. But Akhenaten is complicated, and the fallout of his reign goes in many different directions. So, in a little break with convention, I want to devote an entire episode to this king's legacy and how we imagine him today. Looking back on what he achieved, what he did not achieve, and what his reign might signify in the context of Egyptian kingship. So we will wrap things up for now, and in episode 135, consider the big picture of Akhenaten, who he was, what he did, and what it was all about. It is an intriguing discussion, I look forward to sharing it. For now, it is time to draw this episode to a close. After his passing, Akhenaten's body was mummified and carried to the royal tomb, east of Arket Aten. With that event, the closing of his tomb, the king's reign officially ended, and the new era of his successor could begin. It was going to be a strange, tumultuous, and deeply fascinating phase of Egyptian history. 
Akhenaten's legacy would endure for many years. The king's reforms had a long life, some positive, some negative. And the effects of Akhenaten's reign, the fallout of his decisions, would echo through generations well into the next historical period. We now come to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Extra thanks go to Neil, TJ, Terry, Ellen, and Linda, my priest-level supporters on Patreon.com. You are too generous, folks, and I hope that the Aten shines upon you, and that the wine harvest in this year will be bountiful for your benefit. To everyone listening, take care, and I will see you soon. Before we go, we do have a brief epilogue about Akhenaten's burial, but first, a couple of administrative things. First up, I really enjoyed writing this episode, and I hope it comes through in the delivery. If you enjoyed listening to it, perhaps consider reviewing the show on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. The History of Egypt podcast is creeping up on 900 ratings on the US section of Apple Podcasts, which is great. If you have enjoyed my tale of Akhenaten, or any of the content so far, consider giving the show a rating. Let's see if we can break that 900 marker. Also, the podcast recently passed a significant milestone. 7 million downloads across all platforms. That seems insane to me, considering I started the show as a small hobby while working on university study. Now it has become a thing, a big part of my life, and I have you to thank for that. Cheers to every one of you that has listened and supported the show on its journey so far. Here's to the next step, and many more stories from my favourite culture. Akhenaten was dead, mummified, and entombed in his burial chamber. Throughout all of this episode, I have described his burial as if it was the only one taking place in the royal tomb. But that is not quite true. In fact, we know that Akhenaten shared his tomb with at least two other individuals. Royal family members who died just a few years before him also lay in the chambers of this monument. When you enter the Amarna royal tomb, the corridors, the main axis, head straight down towards the burial chamber. But there are other parts as well. Most notably, a set of side chambers branches off to the right of the main axis. Here, in a suite of small rooms, the king's daughter Meket Aten had gone to her rest, when she died around year 12. The princess lay in a tiny burial chamber, where the walls showed images of mourning as the king and queen grieved their lost daughter. When Akhenaten's funeral took place, the priests and mourners would have walked past the doorway that led to Meket Aten's burial. If Nefertiti, Meket Aten's mother, was there, I wonder if she glanced at that door, the one that protected her daughter. Although Akhenaten was the main attraction, so to speak, it is hard not to imagine the queen taking a moment to remember her deceased child. Beyond Meket Aten, the royal tomb held another burial. This was the king's mother, Queen T. 
The great lady had died sometime around year 12 or 13, not long after Meket Aten. When she passed on, T's body went into the next available space, the burial chamber where Akhenaten himself would lie. So Akhenaten shared his resting place with his mother. Her sarcophagus, protected by a large shrine, lay in one half of the room. The king's casket occupied the other half, and when the burial chamber was sealed for the second time, mother and son lay side by side in the same hall. Finally, there was a plan to add another burial. The royal tomb has three components, the main axis leading to the burial chamber, the side chambers of Meket Aten, and for a while, builders tried to extend the tomb to add another suite. A long, crooked corridor snakes off from the main axis, heading north before swinging back towards the east. This set of passageways was never finished, but clearly, Akhenaten was trying to enlarge the tomb to add another burial chamber. It is unclear if these extra halls were meant to hold the king's burial, or those of Nefertiti and Merit Aten. Either way, the passageways were unfinished when Akhenaten died. As a result, the work stopped, and when the king went to his rest, the tomb was sealed for good. Akhenaten's survivors, his wife and daughter, would need to make other arrangements. The king's tomb was off-limits to any extra work. So, around 1346 BCE, workers downed their tools, and after the king's funeral, they bricked up the doors and closed the tomb for good. Within the darkened halls, Akhenaten lay in state, along with his mother and his daughter. Three generations of royalty lay in this tomb, resting together. A trinity of living gods, lying in the light of Aten. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.